Hello everyone and welcome to the Ranking of the Stars, a podcast in which I, Jack Dilo Bobolik, and my lovely, luscious, luscious lemony fresh wife. <laughs> Hi, I'm Emmeline Dilo Bobolik. Watch in chronological order every single movie that has won the Oscar for Best Picture. And today's movie is... Cimarron. Cimarron. From 1931. Terrific is all creation, says the poster. <laughs> yes. Let's start with that, with the poster. This poster is hands down the best one we've seen so far. Oh, yes. This poster's fucking rad. Yes. Has a lot of color. It's very vibrant. Lots of details. It looks like a... Pulp Fiction cover. It's uh, hand-painted, looks like the cover of a Western novel. I love schlock. This looks like schlock. It's got the main character, uh, his shirt's coming off. uh, He's got guns. All guns. There's a whole train of wagons running down in front of him. He's standing in front of a, a damsel in distress. His gun is smoking. His shirt's coming off. This is chef's kiss, primo schlock. The uh, wagons coming off, uh, uh, coming here, are was my actually actually my favorite detail of the poster because is the last thing that I noticed. I didn't at first glance. I didn't see that there were wagons, and then the more I looked at it, I it yeah, it was really it's really good. Yep. It's really really well made. They're uh, shaded in red, so it looks like a, a river of lava. Flowing yeah. around. There's like, yeah, it looks like lava. everything is in flames. They're horses and wagons. They're horses and wagons, yeah. The one thing that I find odd is that I don't know who the lady in distress is supposed to be. Because it, it looks to me like it's supposed to be Dixie Lee. Yeah, it ain't his wife. Not the, <laughs> not, yeah, the main, um, male character's wife also we're being sold a bill of goods here because his shirt never comes off in the entire movie yes we're getting a lot more uh hot action on this poster than we get through the entire runtime of the movie this poster is also getting ahead of ourselves but to me better than the actual movie oh (laughs) definitely characters and actors yes okay a lot more uh, characters than in the previous movies uh, that we've seen. A lot more uh, characters and, and actors than we've mentioned in previous movies. Yeah, it, the the movie starts off uh, by introducing all the, the characters. And it goes through way more people than have actual noticeable roles in the yes. film. Like I noticed that going back for the synopsis uh, and watching that the list of actors is like who the hell are most of these people because they show people that show up for like one scene and say one thing and they mm-hmm. get a full introduction in the yeah in the opening yeah so main character main male character is um yancy cravat who is played by richard dix good old dick dix yes uh irene dune plays uh sabra cravat uh, Jordy Stone plays uh, Saul Levy. Levi. I don't think they ever. Levy? They only Maybe? call him Saul in the movie. Also, Saul. I didn't know his wife's name was Sabra till I rewatched it either. <laughs> I think 
he probably yeah we probably hear her name maybe once or twice in the they movie. They definitely say it, but like a lot of the other movies we've watched so far, the audio quality is not the best. Yes. So a lot of stuff gets lost in in the muffled. Yeah. Other characters, uh, Robert McQuaid plays uh, Louis Eckner. Oh, he's the old guy? Yes. <laughs> Who shows up for uh, five minutes at the very end? We see him at the beginning, though. Also, what? he's one of, the, he's one of the, the first people that uh, they see when they get into town because he has the uh, furniture and oh, he's got uh, the, store clothes. He's got the combination. Clothes store, yeah. It's a furniture shop in uh, Undertaker, isn't it? I believe so. Yeah. Yes. Lots of combo shops out there. Um, Roscoe Aids plays Jesse Ricky. Who? Jesse, he's the printer for the Oh, for the, the man journal. the man with the yeah, stutter. The okay. I didn't know he had a name. Yes, Jesse. <laughs> uh Eugene Jackson plays Isaiah. And oof. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to it, but we'll, we'll get to it. <laughs> and Estelle Taylor plays Dixie Lee. Perhaps the only likable character in this entire movie dixie lee dixie lee yeah the only yeah. one who's not casually despicable the, the sort of only one who actually to me has her own story yes yes As we'll get to it wandering and uh all over the places movie she's definitely has like the most consistent what you would uh call a yeah, a story that progresses and has a conclusion. Yes, yeah. Uh, some information about the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was directed by uh, Wesley Ruggles. Ruggles. <laughs> That's a funny name to, Get to some pronounce. Get snuggles from Mr. Ruggles. It is based on a 1930 novel by Edna Ferber of the same title. Edna Ferber. This is written by a woman? Yes. For how misogynist it is? Wow. Well, you know, 1930s. Yep. Uh, it was produced and distributed by RKO Radio Pictures. The New York premiere was on January 26, 1931, and was released throughout the United States on February 9th, 1931. The uh, running time is 124 minutes, and uh, it had a budget of $1,433,000, but actually lost some money at the box office because it made um, $1,383,000. Oh, darn. Uh, I looked uh, at the scores on Rotten Tomato. It only has a 50% approval rate on the uh, tomato, tom- tomato meter. Yeah. And it only has a 25% approval rate from uh, audience scores. Mm-hmm. Not just, great. Yeah, just like Broadway Melody, uh, maybe higher than it should be. I'm definitely higher <laughs> than it should be. Yes. Okay, before moving on to plot, let's have some fun facts. Fun about facts. The movie. I like fun. I like facts. Fun facts. Fun facts. <laughs> the uh, word uh, Cimarron itself means wild and untamed. Yep. Uh, although in Spanish it is mostly used to refer to animals, yep. as I understand. That's the name given to his son in the movie. Yeah, it's a name given to given to the son, who is most often called just Sim. Yep, just Sim. 
So you wouldn't necessarily know that his name is supposed to be Simran because he's maybe called that once or twice. Yeah. And that's it. The only time I can think of is in the very beginning when they're still uh, with the god awful in-laws. And at the end when uh, Sabra introduces him at that uh, Yeah, at the luncheon. Yes. Uh, It is one of the biggest productions that RKO has ever had. Um, They actually had to buy um, 89 acres of land to shoot the um, land rush scenes at the beginning of the movie. I think what we're discovering that is if you want to win the Best Picture Award... All you really need to do is have a scene with a whole lot of people in it. Yes, and that's extremely uh, amazing segue because uh, the land rush scenes at the beginning of the movie had 28 cameramen and about 5,000 extras. Yeah, there's a whole lot of people. 5,000 costume extras and all the wagons and the and uh, the horses and all that. Yeah, that's... I read somewhere that it was so iconic that it got uh, reused in other movies. That land rush scene? Yeah, the land rush scene. Wow. I, they wouldn't want to have to film something like that again, so we did <laughs> yeah. it once, that was enough, just reuse it. Yeah. Uh, as for how the movie was received, it was really uh, well received and uh, very much praised. At the time of its release. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no problems. Mo- <laughs> no problems at the time. Perfect movie. But the movie hasn't aged well. No. In fact, uh, aged I Aged found... like milk, I would say. <laughs> I found one review from uh, 2009 by a uh, movie critic named James Berardinelli who writes for uh, reelsreview.net, and he writes uh, that the movie is an excellent study of how tastes has changed over the years. Critically lauded at the time of its release, Cimarron was beloved by most who saw it. Eight decades later, it is frequently cited on lists of the most undeserving academy award winners and is rightfully impugnated i guess uh for punched i don't know um for racist overtones and scattershot storytelling i don't even know i wouldn't call it overtones it's just it's very in your face with its racism uh, yes yeah we'll, we'll get to that open and unashamed yeah and last fact, it was nominated for seven Oscars, including Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Cinematography. And it won three Oscars uh, for Outstanding Production, um, Best Writing Adaptation, and Best Art uh, Direction. Art Direction? Yeah. What? Huh? For everything just being covered in dust? Yeah. Okay. Art. And it is the obviously the first Western movie to win uh, Best Picture. Yeah. Though, much in the same way that uh, Wings is not much of a war movie, this is not much of a Western. It, the style is Western, but the, yeah, the story not so much. The aesthetics yes. are Western more than the actual yeah plot. Yeah. Shall we get to it? Speaking of. Yep.
let's get into it. Buckle up, everybody. This is a doozy. <laughs> uh, first, we're introduced to all the major and minor characters in the film, and the most important character of all is racism. Because uh, there is one black person who is introduced in the character scroll, and uh, all the other white people are in fancy clothes, some have guns, they're uh, posing. Do you remember what the one black character is doing? When the characters are introduced? Yeah, when the character is introduced. I do not. He is shining some boots. Oh. Yup. Oh, Lord, no. Cimarron just comes out swinging, and it's not going to get any better. Yeah. Uh... We are then told, because every movie we watch in this time period has to have some sort of opening narration, some interstitial, uh, we're told, A nation rising to greatness through the work of men and women, new country opening, raw land blossoming, crude towns growing into cities, territories becoming rich states. In 1889, uh, President Harrison, who, opened the vast Indian Oklahoma lands for white settlement. Yeah, emphasis on white. Oof. Uh, two million acres, free for the taking, poor and rich pouring in, swarming the border, waiting for the starting gun at noon, April 22nd. Yeah, the thing that, you know, that I remembered the most about this opening was the white settlement. Yep, like I said, opened and unashamed, uh, not trying to hide it at all. Uh, fade in, and a massive crowd is waiting for the signal to start the land grab. Hundreds of horses, people, and wagons compressed into one unstoppable wave of manifest destiny. <laughs> uh, some have come alone, uh, while others have brought their entire families along. Yeah, there's every combination of horse and people and wagons you can think of. Uh, a lot of people seem to have brought their entire like everything they own along with them yeah. you see like entire families crammed into these things and just pots and pans and, and furniture and tied down there was even a guy with a, a unicycle it wasn't a unicycle it was one of those old uh timey i think they're called penny farthings and sure looked like a unicycle to me and it's one of the old timey bicycles that just has one giant big wheel in front and a tiny little mm. wheel in the back okay yeah one of those things that makes more sense uh, one group of men in the crowd uh, see their old friend Yancey Cravat passing by, and they attract his attention with the Traveler's Song. Uh, Yancey is happy to see them and tells them that he has a wife and four-year-old son now, and that he's going for a spot of land near Bear Creek. Uh, Bugle signals everyone that the starting gun will soon be fired, and as everyone gets set to run... And they get in their places. Uh, a woman named Dixie Lee introduces herself to Yancey. Uh, he tells her he's going for Bear Creek, and wouldn't you know it, she is too. The starting gun is fired, and the wave rushes forward. That first introduction, I, like, Dixie Lee was, um, I don't know, I, awkward is the first word that comes to mind, because he's just told, other, you know, the other guys, oh, I have a, a wife and a four-year-old son, and then... It's very, her introduction to him is very flirty you for some reason. That's what she's going for? Well, I don't know if that's what she was supposed to go for, but it it looked like nothing that to me. I was expecting this entire movie for some sort of romance to blossom yeah. in between those two. But, spoilers, it never does. Mm. Nothing. Uh, and this... Starting gun, an iconic scene, 
uh, the land rush and i can understand why it's really impressive just hundreds and hundreds of people just uh running forward as fast as they can on horses uh some are just running on foot and like you said there's a bicycle yeah uh they keep cutting to this horse that's just seemingly broken free of all human control and is like pulling on its leash and just like whipping its head around and mm-hmm. it is just chaos and, and bedlam wild and untamed yep most people are on horses, some have wagons, if you simply run as fast as they can on their own legs. Uh, Yancey makes it to the section of Bear Creek he wants and crosses a small ditch on his horse. Uh, Dixie Lee comes right behind him on her own horse, and she attempts to cross the same ditch Yancey did, but she crass, pfft, crashes and tumbles off her horse. Uh, Yancey goes to see if she's okay, and she tells him her horse broke its legs and will he please kill it for her, which he immediately complies with, like, yeah. no qualms at all, and shoots from the hip, too. He mm-hmm. just, I think he always does that every time he shoots in this movie. Yes. He, it's just gun pressed solidly against his hip. Does not, the gun never gets above his waist. <laughs> which is... Western style. Yeah, it's cool cowboy way to shoot. I like it. It's one of the only things I like about Yancey. Uh, while Yancey complies, Dixie Lee steals his horse because he had to get off his to check on her to make sure she was okay mm-hmm. and claims the land Yancey wanted by planting a flag on it. It's weird to me that uh, he j- gives up so easily because you see throughout the whole rest of the movie how Yancey barely considers anyone else aside from himself uh, as human or important. So the fact that he just didn't do, walk over and just, like, pick the, the flag up and just throw it. Especially for the time, because we're supposed to be in 1889. Yes. Since when did women have ownership, land ownership in 1889? Yeah, it, yes, it was bizarre that he just accepted that and rolled over so easily. It might have been, you know, Ed, that's reading uh, maybe a little too much into it, but... It might have been just, like, the boldness of it. Like, how... <laughs> respecting her. <laughs> yeah, respecting yeah. the fact that she tricked him and, and was able to claim the land that he wanted. And that that was a bold move on her part. But I we're never... That. We're not really... The only um, explanation he gives, you know, in that next scene is like, Oh, I wasn't going to fight a woman. Yeah, You can't shoot a woman. You can't shoot a woman. And yeah. uh, bullets are the only way Yancey knows how to solve problems. <laughs> Well, I couldn't shoot her. There was no other option. And before we go any further with the plot, just talk about Yancey for a bit because he's a bizarre main character for a Western in his looks especially. Because uh, to me, he looks like a cross between Johnny Cash and Abraham Lincoln. I can see that. I don't see the... Uh, not so much the Abraham Lincoln, well, but I definitely see Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash in the face and then Abraham Lincoln for like the tall, lanky body. Okay. And his haircut, I don't like this term. I just can't think of a better one. It's an emo haircut. Mm. He looks like he belongs in My Chemical Romance, which is yeah. really weird for a main character of a Western movie in 1930. And it gets even, it gets more pronounced um, as the movie goes on. Like, it's almost on the left side. On He's got long sort of uh sort of long dark hair he's got little curls in it on the left side of his hair it's the of his head the hair comes down maybe like uh, 
uh, below his ear. Yep. And then on the right side, He's got it's... a big swoosh. Yes. Yes. The scene where it's the most pronounced to me is towards the end of the movie during the trial. Yeah. He's gesticulating a lot in the trial, so it's, it's flying all and flopping yeah. all over the place. And yeah, just a really, really bizarre main character for a Western. He also has a really distinct way of talking mm -hmm. where uh, you thought that he's a theater actor. So this might have... I, I already thought so. Uh, this might have something to do with like the way he talks and uh, uh, enunciates, but he has like this jowly quality to the way he talks. Like yeah. the God's creation. That kind of thing. Mm -hmm. he almost, it's not as pronounced as Richard Nixon, but it's in that same vein, which is weird because yeah. he doesn't have jowls. He's, <laughs> he's just so bizarre. Uh, yeah, to me, he really felt like a, a theater actor in the way that he really enunciates his words and really uh, has articulate, well-timed pauses in his uh, in his speech. And you can hear the force of his speech, like, yeah, you know, how in English you have, like, stresses on words. Like, he really marks yes, those he, stresses. He has an oration technique. Yes. Which is, you know, it's definitely why I believe he was a, uh, a theater actor. Yep. All right. Back to the plot. Uh, cut to Yancey back home uh, in Wichita with his wife, son, and his wife's family, who are berating Yancey for losing his land to a, and I quote, hussy in black tights. Mm. I, I guess black is a scandalous color back then for a woman to wear. I, they, everyone throughout this movie hates Dixie Lee for no reason. They don't know her. Yeah, well, but I guess the, uh, it's implied at some point that she runs a brothel. I guess they never spell out anything clearly, so we're we're just left to guess. Maybe it's explained in the novel. Uh, Yancey tells them that if it was a man, he could have shot him, but he don't use the bullets on uh, and such on the women folk. Also were uh, hit with more racism in this film because they're all seated around a big table and uh, Isaiah, the one uh, black character in the movie, uh, who is a racist caricature in this film, is uh, laying so. laying on top of a light fixture above the table and just fanning them mm -hmm. with a big feather fan. That's his job. Now, these people are all uh, white and rich and awful. Uh, his mother-in-law tells him he should just settle down in Wichita and run his uh, newspaper and law practice, because Yancey does everything. Uh, but Yancey tells her that this land grab is the start of a new empire, and there hasn't been anything like it since God created the world. Not anything like it since creation, he says. Uh, he's going back to help build a new state out of the last frontier in the nation, a brand new, two-fisted, rip-snorting country full of Indians, rattlesnakes, gun-toters, and desperados. Whoopee! <laughs> that is a direct quote from Yancey. That was, yeah, a bit much for his speech. Honestly, I felt like he was trying to convince everybody, but only convinced himself. Yancey is very often carried away by the Holy Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
which you know at some point in, in the this movie he is leading a congregation oh so i God. guess yeah he's definitely inhabited by the holy spirit yep Yancey leaves with his son in his arms while his in-laws shake their heads in disapproval. Yeah, they all hate Yancey, and he doesn't like them much either. Well, we learn at the beginning, or uh, maybe a little... No, it's in the, the next scene. We learn that he has a past as an outlaw. Some right? sort of vague outlaw past yeah. that we're never given any of the actual details about. Yes. Also, I don't want to gloss over it in this scene. Uh, they're not just racist toward uh, uh, African Americans. They are also super racist to Native Americans in this scene. Uh, Extremely racist to uh, Native His Americans. mother-in-law uh, does not want them to go out and live among savages who are going to scalp them. Yes. She says. And that definitely comes back throughout the, the whole movie. Everyone in this room, with the exception of his four-year-old son and Isaiah, mm -hmm. uh, fucking suck. How dreadful to live in a Cimarron country, one says, because apparently that is the name of the the land they're going to as well. Uh, what does Cimarron mean anyway, asks one of the relatives. It's Spanish, is the reply. It means wild and unruly. Uh, next scene is Yancey and his family on their way to Oklahoma in a wagon. They've stopped to rest, and while unloading one of the wagons, Yancey discovers Isaiah hid himself in a carpet so he could escape his life of fanning old racist white people. <laughs> Uh, Isaiah also, he pleads with them when they're back in Wichita to go along with them. But he's like, please take me with you. Yeah, please get me out of here. Uh, but he's dragged away uh, before Yancey can really answer, uh, give him an answer in that scene. Uh, so he hides in, in, rolled up in a carpet, which, ugh, miserably hot and hard to breathe. Uh, Yancey interprets uh, this action as loyalty and lets him stay. Sometime later, they've stopped for the night, and Yancey and his wife uh, sit under a tree uh, while Yancey tells his wife what a beautiful, awesome life they'll have once they arrive. His promises are interrupted by bandits arriving, but the situation immediately de-escalates because Yancey and the leader of the bandits, referred to as Kid... Uh, in the credits, he's called The Kid. Yeah, but in the movie, they just call him Kid. Yeah. Uh, know each other. Uh, Kid apologizes, wishes Yancey luck, and, and heads out to rob somebody else. Uh, as he leaves, Yancey requests that he stay away from Osage, where his family will be living. Sure thing, says Kid. Mm, yep. Don't want that song. This is the yeah first indication of uh, Yancey's outlaw past. They, they may have one throwaway line about it back with the in-laws, but audio quality and everyone talking at the same time, hard to tell. Uh, this is never fleshed out. No, All you... never, there's never any details about it. No. It's, uh, he used to be a traveler. He knows all these people. How does he know them? What did he do? Did he commit any crimes? Yeah, that's something, I mean... I'm, never we're gonna explained. Get, we're going to get to it, but uh, he, when they get to the town, when they get to Osage, like, he already knows so many people. Yeah, they he... know him, they know his... Uh, they know his name, they know that he's most likely going to create a, a newspaper, and they're, he seems to be, like, he almost has, like, a, an aura around him that's attracting people to him when they arrive in the town. Yes, that is a, a running, uh, thing throughout this movie, is that, uh, everyone knows Yancey, Yancey knows everyone, and they not only know him, but they love him and respect him almost universally. Yes. 
Uh, Yancey can do no wrong. Uh, next scene is the family arriving in Osage late at night, uh, which has the noise and energy of a large county fair. Uh, it doesn't say what time they arrive, but it's... It's nighttime. It's deep nighttime, but uh, no one's asleep. There's tons of people moving around. It, it's like a fair. Like, the streets are packed with people. There's people putting up buildings. There's people getting in drunken bar fights. Mm -hmm. It's just a mess. And he makes some comment to his wife about how uh, it's 10,000 people who sprung up out of the, the empty land in just six weeks. Yeah. And this is also where we see, the, like, all the combination shops, like the, the furniture store and funeral mm -hmm. parlor. Because there's not enough people uh, to cover everything, so they got to double down on a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they immediately witness a bar fight that spills out into the street and results in a murder. Somebody just getting shot right in the street. Uh, Yancey's wife is horrified, but Yancey himself is completely unfazed. He's used to this rough and tumble life. Uh, they make it to their hotel, and Sabra, Yancey's wife, uh, says she won't raise her son in town like this, and she is leaving in the morning. Uh, Yancey says it'll look better in the morning and heads across the street to the bar slash casino called Grat Gotch's Hall of Chance. Hall of Chance, yes. Yes, his wife, uh, super upset, and Yancey's reply is, ah, it'll be fine, and he goes to drink. Yeah, leaves her alone in the, in the hotel with, um, their child and, uh, Isaiah and... Yeah, not not exactly what you'd expect from uh, a husband who's trying to reassure his wife that about the new town that they're going to live mm, in. But no, Yancey never does anything except what he wants to do in any given moment, and he just treats people like shit, and everyone loves him. Yeah, it it sucks. Inside the casino, Yancey is greeted by a bunch of old friends. Like I said, everybody knows and loves him. Uh, but also runs into Lon Yontis, who doesn't like him for non-specific reasons. He just uh, sidles up, just immediate animosity. And I don't know if Yontis is one of the people who knows him from past. It seems like this is the fir their first time meeting. Yeah, because they're introducing themselves. Yeah. And also, there's some cool stuff in this casino. They have, like, the big, like, stand-up roulette wheel mm -hmm. that has just empty space in the center. Yep. That was really cool. And they have a, a cash register where they uh, calculate, I guess, the amount that's in it by dropping small balls into holes at the top of the register. Oh, I didn't know that it was too good to calculate. I thought it was, like, a, a sort of a, a combination to open the cash register. Who can say? Because the the guy who who does it, when we see it on screen, he has a, a glass with what looks... Yeah, they're small balls. Little and marbles. He just, marbles, yes. And he just drops them. There, there's a number of uh, spots where he can drop them, and... Once he's done dropping them, the cash register opens. So I thought it was, uh, the, the marbles were used to open the cash register. I was assuming that that was calculating the amount either that was being put into the register or being taken out so that the tally could be correct. I don't fucking know. It was cool, though. One of the very few cool things in this movie. <laughs> Uh, the bartender asks Yancey if he's going to start a newspaper again, and Yancey says yes. And also that he knows that the previous newspaper man in town was shot in the back and killed with a meaningful look at Yontis. How, how does he know this? We don't know. 
uh, he that's another thing about Yancey is he just has like the omniscient sight of the hero he just instantly knows everything and we it, don't know how much time he spent in town before he you know came back to uh came back to get Sabra and yeah. and Sam before you know before they move out to Oklahoma we have no idea about how much time yep. he spent in the town. Maybe he knew about Yontas before, but this is their first time actually meeting. The movie is tight-lipped about almost all the details of everything, so just go with it. A man with a severe stutter then comes up to Yancey and asks to work in the newspaper. That's Jesse! That's Jesse. Uh, stutters are a shitty running joke in these days, apparently. Because this is the second movie where we've had uh, someone with a pronounced stutter and... I don't think it's being played for laughs as much as it was in the Broadway melody, but it still is, like, why? Yeah, it, it has no, it just has no part to play in the movie. Maybe the character in the novel, they're just being true to that, but also, it, yeah. It but just... even then, like, if you're going to give a character, if it was uh, something, if the actor himself had a starter... I would understand, but if they're just giving a stutter to the character just for laughs and giggles, I don't know. Yep. Not great, but uh, one of the minor offenses in this movie. Much, uh, much worse things are coming. Oh, yeah. Uh, the next day, Yancey and Sabra are walking through the town and pass Yontis and his gang. Uh, and his wife says something to the effect that everyone's looking at her because she's too fancily dressed. Yeah, which she is for the town. She, yeah, she's got a, a fancy... Well, the majority of women in this movie are wearing, at minimum, like 40 pounds of, of cloth at all times. She has a corset. She has uh, some uh, undergarment also. Um, um, poofy sleeves, parasol. Poofy sleeves, parasol, but she also has something that was Super used, fancy hat. Something that, fancy hat, but also something that was used back in the day uh, to, I don't know if it was meant to make women's uh, butts look bigger, but it's put over you're behind and it's uh, supposed to like, make the um the dress or a skirt like fall um like a little further away from your feet yeah it's like a big metal frame right yeah yeah yeah, yeah the bizarre uh, fashion trends of yesteryear uh yontis yells at yancey about wearing a white hat but yancey ignores him so uh yontis shoots it off yancey's white hat gets mentioned repeatedly in the beginning but it kind of falls off toward the middle of the film. I don't mm. know. I guess white hats are fancy. I don't fucking know. The white savior, maybe. It's never it's never articulated that way. But maybe either more expensive or fancier. Makes, it makes him uh, stand out from the crowd. Yeah. You think you're so fancy wearing a white hat? That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yancey picks up his hat and he takes a, a cloth out to, to wipe the dust off because it's falling on the ground and exposes his gun. Mm -hmm. And so all of... Uh, Which makes the the other gangsters jump. Yeah, they, they oh shit! And then they all uh, go back inside because uh, they think that Yancey and Yantis are about to have a, a shootout. 
but instead, uh, Yancey just uh, shoots a bullet, like, right past uh, Yontis's head, like, so close that it, like, parts his hair. Mm. Sabra then yells at Yontis, and Yancey tells her to stop uh, because it'll harm his reputation as a tough guy if people think he's hiding behind a woman's skirts. Y- Yancey, uh, at least, is not uh, picky about his discrimination. Yancey <laughs> is bigoted toward... Everyone who is not Yancey. Uh, Next scene, Yancey and his wife are setting up the newspaper office while he tells her how trapped he felt in Wichita. Five years in one place. It's the longest stretch he's ever done. He then tells her that he intends to find out who killed the previous newspaper man and print it in the first edition of his paper. Outside, their son, uh, Sim, receives a cool feather gift from a Native American and runs in to show his mom, Sabra, who takes it away because Native Americans are filthy, according to her. Yeah. Yep. It is relentless. Which, it really, her reaction really wasn't great because it's that scene with the the Native American giving the, the feather. Like, you can see the, the child, you can see uh, Sim, like, being curious and almost he doesn't really say anything but you can see him uh being sort of inquisitive and curious about the the situation and then and excited so excited that he runs inside to show it to his mom and then Mm. it's immediately shut down he has not internalized the prejudice of his parents so uh he takes the cool gift for what it is a cool gift a cool gift in town, uh, Yontis and his gang uh, bully a man selling things off a mule for absolutely no reason. And once things escalate to shooting, Yancey steps in. This is Saul. Saul, yeah. Yep, they're just, they just start, he's just walking by with his mule that he sells things off of, and they just start heckling him for no reason. They lasso him and pull him over. They, like, try and force him to drink alcohol by just, like, dumping it into his mouth. It's, I believe it's implied or or maybe explicitly said that he's jewish yes so they're targeting him because he's jewish yeah did they vocalize that or you just is that your guess if i remember well because i i didn't really watch the the movie like you did but i remember that they mentioned something about his nose oh yeah gross so they eventually start, like, shooting at his feet to, like, make him dance and, you know, scare him, and that's when Yancey steps in. He asks Yontis if Yontis killed the, the former newspaper guy, and Yontis tells him to keep his nose out of it. And uh, Yancey replies with what the closed captioning refers to as a war whoop. <laughs> this is where the part, this made you laugh, where he just goes, <laughs> real loud. It sounded like a horse... Hissing? I don't know if that's the, the the correct word, but like... He just, he rears back, looks up at the sky, and just screeches at the yes. top of his lungs. It yes. comes out of nowhere and just bizarre. Uh, one of Yontis' gang, after Yancey leaves, says it was like a Cherokee mm-hmm. death cry, I think. And that means that uh, now either Yontis or Yancey, uh, it's one or the other. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're bound in a terrible fate to each other. God knows if that's actually true. Uh, Back at home, Yancey is visited by three men from town who ask him to conduct divine service next Sunday. Uh, Yancey says he'd be pleased to do it. 
the service is being held in the casino because they have nowhere <laughs> else to do it. Uh, and as, no, nowhere else that's big enough. Yeah, it's the biggest space in town. And as Yancey and his wife walk there, we're treated to the worst scene in the movie. Oh, gosh. Yeah, this scene sucks. It's when uh, the racist character, uh, caricature, uh, Isaiah, is uh, following them to church. And uh, everyone is laughing at him as he comes along because he's dressed himself up as a cowboy and the clothes are he has on his back are way too big yeah they're way too big so he's like a a a kid in in adult clothing and everyone's laughing at him and he just wanted to be as fancy as he could so he could go to church service with them yancey laughs at him as well and very condescendingly uh offers to buy him a proper suit and hands him his gun so he can go back and defend their house and not embarrass them. Yeah. Right? And it it just it made my skin crawl. Yeah, it was miserable. I, I felt embarrassed, disappointed also, which probably I shouldn't have. This is, you know, a movie made in the 1930s about the 18... Uh, <laughs> late 1800s. Yeah. But it's... I knew going back and watching old stuff like this that we were going to encounter a lot of problematic and outright racist stuff, but man, oh man, did we step on a landmine with this one. Especially because the fact that everybody knows Yancey and they seem to respect him, in that moment when he offers to buy Isaiah a suit... You almost want to believe that he's going to do it, but it's immediately destroyed because he's like, "Well, you know what you can do for me? Just go home and guard, you know, guard our house while we're at the at the service." It's just yeah, he's clearly just getting uh... rid of him, and Yancey is never uh, openly abusive or hostile no. towards Isaiah. It is just this undercurrent of silent superiority. Right. It is yeah. It is just a, a God-given fact that he's superior. So he doesn't need to flaunt the fact that he's superior. It's, it, it's just the the way that the world is. Yeah, just like, you know, when they discover um, Isaiah in the wagon and he says, oh, that shows his loyalty. It's almost like his loyalty was expected. Yes, he treats him as a... Uh, favored pet not yeah. not as an equal yeah not as an equal definitely uh you know young servant who's going to make himself useful yes it is i will be nice to you but you are a servant yeah. and that is your place it is it, it's gross um, after that awful scene uh they go inside the casino uh and sabra takes her seat and the woman next to her introduces herself as Miss Tracy Wyatt. Uh, she's the town busybody, and she sucks. I would describe this woman as a school marm. <laughs> she is... Not sure what marm means. A school marm is just someone who's very uh, rigid and uh, concerned with the rules and no-nonsense, no-fun, uh, moral busybody, and that's mm-hmm. exactly what she is. Uh, she's a pearl clutcher. She's... Ex- 
exactly the kind of person who would make a noise like, ooh. Which she does, though. Which, yeah, she does. And Tracy Wyatt is played by Edna May Oliver. She looks like an Edna. Yeah, and this is... Uh, she has a very funny look about her, and, and even in the way that she dresses. She's there. got, like, no chin, so... And her face is very old. Very, very long. Yep. Very long. And this is... Uh, she brags to Sabra about uh, being a, a descendant of one, um, the original Pilgrim. Oh, well, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. That's yes. what it is. Yes. She can trace her lineage back to one of the signers of the Declaration She's She's a high society woman and has nothing better to do than uh, stick her nose in everyone's business. A group of women then enter together, led by Dixie Lee. They cause a stir because of their outfits, and Tracy is especially offended. She leans over and whispers something in Sabra's ear, but we don't know what. I think this is where she's telling Dixie Lee's uh, either runs a brothel or is a prostitute herself, or something about these women's outfits are scandalous, which I don't understand because they're covered head to foot. Just like... Yes, but their corsets are extremely tight. They look like the, um, if you've watched like, other uh, westerns, they look like the kind of like women who would be portrayed as maybe like waitresses in saloons. Yes, they'd be standing on top of the piano kicking their feet. Yes. Yeah, that's the way they're dressed. They have a lot of like um, details and ornery on their, uh, um, on their dresses, uh, kind of a little bit of like lace, so... You know, definitely more on the scandalous side and not the wifely type. Yes, whereas uh, Miss Tracy, uh, her outfit looks like she's in a marching band. <laughs> uh, Yancey takes the stage and begins the first meeting of the Osage First Methodist Episcopalian Lutheran Presbyterian Congregational Baptist Unitarian Hebrew Church. Everything and anything. Yep. Casting the net wide, covering all his bases. Uh, he opens the service by saying he's never preached before and then asking the crowd what songs they know. Let's sing a song. Uh, what do you people know? Uh, I'm One of the people suggests that they sing the Traveler's song that those guys in the opening used mm -hmm. to first get his attention. I don't know if that's the song they actually sing, though. Uh, after song is picked, Yancey says that a hat will be passed around while they sing, and if anyone doesn't give enough, he'll throw them out himself. Uh, yeah, the Lord ain't asking, he's telling. Yes. Uh, after the song, Yancey announces that they raised $133.55, and the 55 cents means someone in, in the crowd is a miserable, tight-fisted skinflint. And then they have, this whole time, the, the congregation is just talking back to, they're just holding a conversation. Yeah. Like, they're not quiet the way it is in an actual church. It's a very open dialogue, and after he, uh, complains about only getting 55 cents uh they all take a guess at who would be which presents a, another opportunity for racism because someone says oh it must be the the indians in the back at which point yancey actually stands up for them and says uh no indian would be uh, foolish enough to donate to a people that has robbed them of their birthright mm -hmm. one of the few times that he's going to stand for them well, he stands up for them multiple times in the movie, but it's not enough oh, for to sure. overlook yeah, for sure. all the enough. other god-awful behavior that he does on a routine basis, which the movie clearly thinks it's enough to redeem his... Well, 
the movie doesn't think Yancey needs to be redeemed, mm. right? But this clearly uh, makes him not just a good man, but a great man, because he he recognizes uh, uh, the plight of the Native American and mm. the awful abuse that they have been made to suffer. Uh, then he says it's time for the sermon, and if anyone wants to leave, to do so now. He's speaking to Lon Yontis, because Lon Yontis is in the back, and they pass by uh, him as they're walking to the casino, and his wife says, is it okay he's here? And uh, Yancey replies that he likes to have his entire flock uh, under his watch. Yeah. So he's fine with it. Uh, nobody leaves. Uh, he quotes one single Bible passage about a lion in the streets, I believe it's something from Romans, and then immediately goes into a rant about uh, there being a lion in the streets of Osage uh, that murdered the newspaper guy and how he intends to reveal who the murderer is uh, at this very meeting. Uh, yes, Yancey just uses this whole sermon as self-promotion. Yeah, well, he also mentions at first that he was going to publish the name of the murderer in the very first issue of his uh, of his newspaper next week on Thursday. And then ask the crowd forgiveness for uh, this selfish act. And yes. they just immediately starts committing another selfish act by making the <laughs> sermon all about him and uh, his current drama. Yancey sucks, but everyone still loves him. He's going to expose a matter. Yep. Before he can do so, Yontis, uh, standing in the back, pulls out his gun and fires. Yancey ducks, and the bullet misses. Yancey fires back and kills Yontis dead. He's got two guns at this point. He, he has one gun in each hand. Yep. Two fisting. Two fisting fist Yancey. Standing on stage with a gun in each hand, Yancey tells the church members that the sermon is canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, his sermon consisted of a single Bible passage, him yelling for one minute, and then pulling out a gun and murdering a man. Well, don't forget the song. The song, yes. And he... the money collecting. And, you know, I thought Lon Yontis was being set up as the antagonist of this entire film when he is first introduced. Because uh, that is the the common Western trope, you know, uh, you enter a new town, you uh, anger the local bully, uh, you antagonize each other throughout the film, and then finally at the end you have a showdown. Nope, uh, we're not even halfway through the movie. And, and Yantas is dead. He is unceremoniously killed with next to no effort. Problem solved. On his way out of the service, Yancey is stopped by Dixie Lee, who tells him she had to give up the land that she stole from him back at Bear Creek uh, because her neighbor's wife formed a vigilance committee. This is, she's like the opposite of Yancey because everywhere she goes, everyone hates her for no reason. Mm -hmm. And everywhere Yancey goes, everyone loves him for no reason. Mm -hmm. And he's an awful person, but they still love him. And she does nothing to deserve this ire and everyone just hates her guts. I, yeah, I already assumed that, I, we're never getting really given any details about it, but I assume that it's at first because she is a woman without a man with her. I'm sure that has something to do with it. Back home, Yancey's wife is upset because he talked to Dixie, but he tells her that Dixie is just a, uh, a victim of circumstance. 
And speaking of victims, Yancey pulls out his gun and carves a notch into the handle to celebrate his latest kill. I believe he's got like five seven, or s- seven. Seven, you counted? Yeah. His seventh kill. What a hero. Uh, we then have our first time skip to 1890, and Yancey and Sabra have a daughter named Donna now. They have some visitors coming to see the baby, and Sabra says she wants to start a women's club in town. Uh, she then gets up and faints for no particular reason, and this is never addressed ever again. No, there's not a, nothing is explored. At that point, I thought, okay, maybe she's going to turn out to have a an illness, maybe she's going to die. Nothing is ever done with that. Nope. One of the many just random things that happens in this movie that does not relate to anything else. Uh, Yancey places her on the couch, but can't tend to her for very long because all of a sudden uh, the sound of gunfire comes from outside. Mm-hmm. Uh, a band of outlaws has randomly shown up and are yelling and shooting the windows out of the stores and causing a ruckus. The bandits are led by Kid, who forgot Yancey lived in Osage, or maybe just... He probably knows uh, that Yancey has that wanderlust and can't stay in one spot for very long, and it's been uh, a number of years now since they met on Yancey's way out, so probably just figured that he had moved on by now. Uh, Yancey goes outside to deal with the bandits, and he tells someone, maybe Saul or or Jesse, inside the house to keep everyone away from the windows, which uh, whoever he tells it to says okay, and then the next scene, everyone is just standing right at the windows looking out. Yeah, I think he tells Saul, but then uh, Jesse is also there. Yeah. After Yancey goes out, Saber realizes that their son Sim is still outside, which causes Isaiah to volunteer to go find him. Isaiah then steps outside, and within 30 seconds of leaving the house, is shot and killed. Which is actually a relief for me as a viewer, because it means we don't have to put up with this racist caricature anymore. Thank God at least one of the shitty elements of this movie is is dealt with and gone now yeah i felt you know i wouldn't say sad because this is a fictional character you know and he hasn't had much screen time anyway but yeah it just it felt disappointing still that this was how his character was treated yep both the way he was treated, you know, in the screen time that he had, and also just the way he, they make him die. A tragedy in many ways. Meanwhile, Yancey has taken care of all the bandits, except for Kid. Uh, he fixes that mistake and shoots Kid, who is mortally wounded but still alive. Uh, alive enough to crawl along the ground and uh, try and make it back to his horse, which he does. Uh, he gets up, staggers to his horse, but... Uh, he makes like he's about to jump up on the horse, but then he spins around and shoots Yancey in the arm uh, before hopping up in the saddle. Uh, Yancey returns fire, and a kid falls off his horse, uh, dead for a second time. Uh, Yancey walks over, and kid says he's sorry and dies. Yeah, they're they're very friendly towards each other. There's never any animosity. It's uh, even after being shot by Yancey and Yancey killing kid. Kid's just like, ah, yeah, I'm sorry. I I shouldn't have come here. And Yancey's mm-hmm. like. Yancey asks if there's anything to do, and Kid just says, yeah, buy me a nice coffin. With another just character, which I'm assuming was given, was way more fleshed out in the novel, because here he appears in the first scene for less than two minutes, mm-hmm. and then here the shootout is less than five. Yeah. There's so many elements in this movie that feel like you're 
are expected to have more weight to them than they have. I guess it's because the movie is expecting mm. that most viewers have read the novel, so they, they just know the backstory and it doesn't need to it's fill probably. it in for you. Yeah. But uh, as people who haven't, this it, it all feels all feels very weightless. Yeah. I also, you know, we talked about that, but I, I felt at that point that since Yancey had gotten rid of the bandits, that he was going to be probably elected sheriff or mayor. Yeah. I, it felt like the what should have been maybe the natural progression. Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, well, at this point, we still thought it was a Western movie, right? So, <laughs> right. And that's how, what like, if... If a uh, masculine, competent character enters into a town and everyone loves him, of course he's going to be made sheriff, right? No. (laughs) Uh, Back at the house, Sabra is double happy because A, Yancey didn't die and leave her to raise two children by herself in this shithole town, and B, a kid had a huge bounty on his head, and now they can collect. Mm -hmm. Yancey doesn't want the bounty, though, because him and kid rode side by side together on the open range. They were friends, and he only killed him because he was putting Yancey's family at risk. Uh, a, A sad, terrible thing he had to do. Uh, A man then enters with Isaiah's corpse, uh, and Yancey takes it and stares at the wall. Uh, Before that happens, as Yancey's just walking back to the house, he walks by Isaiah, who is bleeding out, just in the road. But he's, like, tucked away in a little corner, because he he got shot and he fell into a back alley, basically. And he's laying there, bleeding out, dying. And he yells out. He like, fell like he fell almost like what looks like a ditch, a little bit between two houses yeah, or just, two businesses. Yeah, it's just a gap between buildings, yeah. full of barrels and crates and whatnot. And he's too weak to to yell out strongly or pull himself up. So he's still alive. And yeah. Yancey walks by him, and he tries to yeah reach out his hand. Tries to get his attention, but Yancey just walks on by, and and then he d- dies for real. And then yeah, the end of the scene is really weird with Yancey just. It, the camera lingers on him holding Isaiah's corpse with his back to the camera, just staring mm-hmm. at a wall, not saying anything. I was waiting for him to start crying or to uh, quote a passage of scripture because he does that a lot in conversation. Or make a, yeah, make a speech. Yeah, something. But nope, just fade to black with him uh, awkwardly holding a corpse and staring at a wall. Uh, next time skip, and we're in 1893. Uh, the Cherokee Strip is opening, which means another land grab. Uh, Yancey's friends ask if he'll be doing any grabbing, but Yancey tells them he can't. He has too much work to do. Uh, He then sits at home with a telegram announcing the opening of the strip and fidgets. He's he's got a nice house at this point. He, like, looks at the the nice proper food on the table, Mm -hmm. and he just, like, fidgets and squirms in his seat. Yeah. It's all becoming a little too domestic for Yancey's taste. Then there's a quick scene outside where Dixie Lee is cleaning off a little kid who fell in the mud, and the god-awful school marm uh, comes up and yells at her because she's filthy and not fit to touch a child. It lasts, The scene lasts less than a minute, and then we just go back. We just just need another opportunity for someone to shit on Dixie Lee, I guess. Yeah, she would, again, like you said before, she does nothing to deserve that treatment. She is... Comforting the, comforting the kid, yeah, offering some sweets. She's helping a kid. Yes. And it's just, don't touch that child, you filthy, evil, uh, non-specific, bad person. 
Back in the house, Sabra tells Yancey uh, her latest women's meeting went well. I think she quotes him saying it's a new empire. She... It's a new empire. It's uh, something when he talks about the creation, that his quote about... Um, nothing the... like nothing has happened since, like it since creation. Yes. Yeah. She just steals his line and it went over well with the other ladies. And she's really starting to enjoy living here. Cool. Cool, Yancey replies. Hey, want to sell everything, grab some land, and start all over? <laughs> uh, he's nearing his five-year limit of being in one place and is getting restless. Which she does uh, uh, notice. Yeah. She, she tells him, well, it's only been four years. Yes, you're already reaching your limit, huh? Yeah, she understands. Uh, he gives her the exact same, this is a new empire. We got you know, yes. to go, it's going to be a state someday. This is an unparalleled opportunity to start a new country. The same speech he gave her before they moved to Osage. And despite her protests and pleading, hops on his horse in full view of both his children and rides off and abandons his family same day as like learning about this now. Not even like, Two hours after learning about this announcement, he gets mm-hmm. the telegram, tells his friends about it. It happens in like less than an hour that he yeah. finds out about this and then just abandons his family. He's got a back prepared. Yeah, he just, he tells her he wants to go. She says no. Uh, he, he, you know, I'll come with me. Get the children. Let's start all over. She, no, I don't want to abandon all the progress we've made here. So he just straps on his gun belt, hops on a horse and takes off. Yes. No second glances. Doesn't even I'll say... I'll come back for you, he says. Yes. He says, like, oh, I'll send word or something. Yeah. Doesn't say goodbye to his kids. Just, he wants to go and he goes. This is this is the hero of our film. And this is really where this movie takes a turn. Yep. This is where it just starts going all... Because, yeah, in the beginning, it seems like it's going to have a standard Western structure with the introduction of the, the villain and uh, coming to a new place and... and having to be the law in that place. Yeah. But, th- yeah, this is where it just starts going, swerving all over the road and just descends into madness. An interstitial then tells us that five years have passed and there has been no word from Yancey to his family. Just abandons them. Uh, the nation, however, is thrilled at the Spanish-American War. So that's good. Sabra has been running the paper in Yancey's absence and is on a crusade to have Dixie Lee put in jail, because Dixie Lee is just the, the town whipping post. Yes. Uh, a successful crusade, because Dixie Lee's trial begins that very day. Uh, what is her crime, you ask? Uh, fuck you, that's her crime. Because <laughs> I don't think they ever say it. No. It's just everyone in, everyone in town unanimously hates her, and so they're putting her on trial for not liking her. Somebody, I think, Yancey asks, uh, you know, what are the charges? And she's not, uh, Sabra is not really able to to, uh, give him any other details. The charge is that she's not married. Uh, It's during this scene that uh, one of the newspaper employees talks to Sabra about Yancey and, oh boy, uh, says that men like Yancey build the world and men like the worker just live in it. And this, it's Jesse. It's Jesse that yeah. says that. And this is said as like a positive thing, but if this is accurate and living in modern times, I think it is. It's man, it's depressing. It's depressing. <laughs> 
interesting and also you know we see uh sabra looking at the latest uh copy of the of the newspaper and it still has yancy as the the editor and all that and she's you know she's sad she's uh longing for him and it's just i don't know it at this point I was already done with Yancy as a character, but I'm like, why is... It's been five years. Why is everybody still uh, treating him like a god and idealizing him? Mm-hmm. He, he's gone. He, this man has left his family, his wife and kids, his business, everything. Five years he's been gone. Like, let's yep. forget about him. On, on a whim because he wanted to have an adventure. Yes. I almost in that scene, um, Saul is there at the uh, with uh, Sabra because now he's got a store and he yep. she advertises for him and he's giving her money for the advertisement and, and all that. I almost thought that maybe she had started over and and was going to be like a lover with um, yeah. with Saul. She looks at him like very. Uh, she has this like very caring uh, look for him, and I thought maybe they they were together at he's, that point. He's certainly much kinder and respectful to her than Yancey ever is. Yeah, yeah. I, she should have paired up with Saul. Uh, I think Dixie Lee would have been a much better fit for Yancey as well. Yes. Yeah, everyone's just paired up with the wrong person in this film. And, and yeah, like you said, Yancey can do no wrong. He is uh, never, ever, ever, ever held accountable for anything he does. No, nobody ever confronts him about it. Well, they, it's not that they don't confront They don't even view it as a bad thing. Yeah. Like, well... Only, there's one line that Sabre says, and she was like, why should I, you know, why should I take you back? And Yeah, when he does return. <laughs> Men like Yancey build the world, a chilling thought. <laughs> uh, Saber sits down for dinner uh, with Sim and Donna yeah. when a commotion outside gets their atten- attention. Yancey is back, uh, and everyone is ta- in town is overjoyed. Uh, he charges right back into his house like he never left, uh, kisses his wife, says hello to his daughter, and tells his son he'll buy him a pony. No apology, no nothing. Nothing Just at like. All. Uh, I I left when I wanted to leave. I came back when I uh, wanted to uh, to come back. It's my God given right to do anything I want to do, and uh, I give zero shits about how it affects uh, anyone else because I'm the only real person in the world. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Yancey is then called into the back where the newspaper is being printed by Jesse, so they can have some uh, whiskey together to celebrate his return. Uh, while they're drinking, Yancey sees the headline for tomorrow's paper. Is talking about Dixie Lee being jailed because Sabra just thinks the the trial is a, a done you know it's a, done deal. it's a sure thing because everyone hates her. Uh, he asks Sabra about the trial, finds out Dixie Lee has no defender, and decides that he's the man for the job. Well, of course he can do everything. Yep, he does whatever he wants to. Follows nobody rules, not nobody's rules, not even his own. Fade into the courtroom, and the prosecution is in the midst of a passionate rant about Dixie Lee being a viper lurking in their midst and a stain on the community, etc., etc. He just calls her evil. And we still don't know why. Yep, still don't know why. Uh, Yancey gets up and makes a joke about how the prosecutor can strut even when he's sitting down and everyone laughs because everyone fucking loves Yancey. He, yeah. he can do no wrong. He's the golden boy. 
and then he tells the jury that Dixie Lee is a victim, not a perpetrator. He calls her to the stand and has her talk about how uh, both her parents died, leaving her to fend for herself, how she married uh, young when she was a librarian, but found out that her husband uh, had already been married to someone else and then abandoned her. And after that, she was chased out of every job she found in every town she lived in because it's her fault she got divorced, I guess. She also had, uh, it's revealed that she had a baby and that baby died. Yes, and then the camera cuts to, to Sabra and she actually has like a, a sympathetic look on her face. Like, oh, maybe it was wrong for me to just hate this person and try and ruin their life for absolutely no reason yeah because clearly nobody knows anything about this like they could have just asked her yeah you know but nobody talks to her just like any time the only interaction they ever have with her is calling her evil and filthy and to get out yes the prosecution objects before dixie can tell her whole story uh, but the jury finds her not guilty after a passionate uh, speech from Yancey. He takes the 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 tact of like, well, just uh, uh, um, imagine your own women folk being in, in such a situation, and and uh, we can't blame her. And would you want this to happen to your own daughters? And that's his strategy. Yes. Uh, Sabra is furious, and uh, Miss Tracy clutches her pearls and collapses. Back at home, Sabra yells at Yancey because he's humiliated her and torn down everything she's worked for and was probably doing the horizontal monster mash with Dixie this whole time. You just defended her because you're bonier, uh, is her thought. I, and which I told you, I, I almost, almost, I had that thought during the the trial when he's, you know, asking her what her circumstances are. And she says, you know, I, I was married and my husband had, had uh, another wife and, and another family. I almost thought at that point that there was going to be a plot twist and that it was going to be re- revealed that um, Yancey was that man. And that man is you! Because, I don't know, it just... It they, just seemed like a logical plot twist. They're, they're, they have way more chemistry than he does with his wife. Yeah, and also he like he seems to know a lot about her, but yeah. we never see them like fraternize or having any kind of like relationship or anything. I'm sure that this is something that's more fleshed out in the in uh, the novel as well. It's just the movie doesn't give us any background for their friendship. Yeah, if they even have one. If they even have yeah, one. Yeah, you mentioned that when we were talking about the movie off mic and how you were surprised that he knew so much about her and I told you that I had just accepted the fact that the film views Yancey as like this he's perfect yeah right so it didn't even register to me that he knew something that he shouldn't know because of Mm. course he knows it because he's Yancey and Yancey knows everything and he's always right yeah just flew right over my head completely unnoticed uh, Yancey says it's fine because Dixie Lee will leave town anyway and because Sabra didn't really want to put her in jail uh, what she wants to put in jail is the current social order. What? <laughs> this just comes out of nowhere. It's, oh, you didn't hate her. You you hate how our society is. What? There's no indication of that. His only interest in Dixie was making sure she got one, la- one less kick, he says. Mm. Uh, maybe if things had been different... 
Uh, Dixie could have been like me, says Sabra. Married. Safe. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad I have you, Yancey. What? Ugh. Yep. Just falls into his arms. Uh, the abandonment of his family and the uh, public humiliation he has just uh, subjected his wife to on a whim is completely forgiven because... Because he's back. Yeah. I know this is like... Again, we're viewing this in, you know, all 90 plus years after the movie was made. And obviously we have a different outlook on... Um, marriages and how society uh, should look like or can look like but man this is hard to watch honestly i'm you know i'm as much as a feminist uh, as uh, anybody else can be but oh good lord it's so hard to watch her just being devoted to somebody who clearly doesn't give a shit about nope. anybody else but himself he, yeah. he just, uh, he walks all over constantly and her only, well, she does get mad at him, but always at the end of the day, the response is, oh, please, sir, can I have some more? Yeah. And, oh, you're, you're such a, you're such a, a, a good loving husband. Ugh. New interstitial, and it tells us that President Roosevelt. Intertitle? Intertitle. <laughs> tells us that President Roosevelt has made the territory of Oklahoma into a state. And... We are. This is then proven to us by showing us both a picture of the signature and of Roosevelt himself. Just a static image of President Roosevelt just fades up on the screen for a few seconds and then fades out. I laughed. <laughs> that was great. <laughs> Roosevelt, you know, this guy. <laughs> then big letters uh, rush at the screen. Oil. Not war this time. Oil. Oil. Same thing. Uh, it's now 1907, and Osage has grown even larger, with multi-story buildings, a trolley, and uh, telegraph wires all around town. I assume they're telegraph wires, because I don't think they had uh, phones at this point. No. Uh, we return to the Yancey household and find Sabra making uh, final alterations to a dress Donna is wearing. Uh, Donna is now a, a full-grown uh, teenager. And uh, Donna telling her that the dress looks like shit and she refuses to wear it to school and isn't even going to go back to school because she's afraid she'll get laughed at because her family hasn't struck oil yet. She says, and I quote, even the Indians have more money than we've got. Generational racism in all its glory. Yeah, she is despicable. In that in that scene, and just throws a tantrum uh, a little la uh, little later in that, that same scene, and it's just child, shut yep. up. Yep, just immediately. This this film cannot pass up uh, any opportunity to to shit on Native Americans. It is one of its favorite pastimes. Uh, she goes on to complain about the men in the family. Uh, her beef with Yancey is that he doesn't make enough money. And, uh, Sim is dating a Native American woman named Ruby. Ruby, who, um, I was going to mention it earlier, but when, uh, Yancey comes back and, and, uh, Sabra and the kids are having lunch, we see Ruby. Because yep. they have, um, Sabra... As racist as she is, uh, needed the help and oh, well, uh, yeah. hired Ruby to be her help. Well, you know they can do manual labor. They That's just cool. they just can't ever you know uh, 
marry her son. Consider themselves equals. <laughs> yeah, and that's not actually that's not the first time we see Ruby. No, because they're uh, in that shootout. Yeah. Um, it's the you see Sim when he's still like four years old. Yeah, and he's playing with her outside. Yeah, and they're like holding hands and, and being friends. And, yeah, yeah, it's nice. Sim then comes in and tells Sabra that he's going to see Ruby, and uh, Sabra says he ought to be ashamed of himself. He says he's going to marry Ruby, and uh, Sabra says Yancey will put a stop to it, but apparently Yancey has already given his blessing. He tells he tells uh, Sabra that, and then her face falls, because <laughs> even she realizes that there isn't shit she can do going against Yancey, right? Oh, yeah. the main character wants this. It's going to happen. There's literally no force in heaven and earth that can stop it now. It's almost, it feels like the first time that she realizes her place in this marriage, how, which is, she has none. Yeah, how powerless she is. Yeah, because Yancey makes all the decisions and, and she can just follow along. Yep. She leaves, or he leaves, excuse mm-hmm. me, uh, Sim leaves. And uh, Donna loudly laments that there will be an Indian in the family now and refers to it as a social problem. Uh, Donna is the worst character in all the movies we've watched so far. And she takes no time getting to it. She is on the screen for uh, probably about three minutes. Mm-hmm. And she I don't think she has a single line that is not racist or complaining because uh, they're not rich enough. Yeah. She just rotten to her core. God awful. Liked her uh, way better when she was a baby. Next, we see a poster showing Yancey running for governor. Uh, he's visited in his office by a man we've never seen before, right? We I don't think we've ever seen this guy show up in the I movie. I don't think so. I don't know if he even gives his name. We're, I just assume that we know who he is because we read the novel but we didn't. Uh, the man says he can guarantee Yancey will win the election as long as Yancey agrees to go along with the man's plan to steal money from the Native Americans once he's in office. This mm-hmm. man has it all set up. He's going to, like, it has something to do with, like, land rights and oil and... Uh, yeah, they want to steal the land. Yes, they want to steal the land. Uh, Yancey replies that he's uh, known about the man's plan for weeks and that he thinks it's the most filthy piece of politics to ever come to the state of Oklahoma. Uh, Yancey probably isn't going to be governor. He's the man, uh, storms out and, uh, in a huff and, and slams the door. Yeah. After the man departs in a huff, Yancey reads an article he plans to print in tomorrow's paper to Sabra about how the Native Americans are being discriminated, discriminated against and abused by the government. That's treason, Squee- squeals Sabra. Also, Native Americans should be given full citizenship and the right to vote, says Yancey. Uh, Sabra nearly faints. Uh, if he prints it, she'll never forgive him. This is the point where she says, I have for- forgiven you for a lot of things over these past ten years, Yancey Cravat, but I will never forgive you for this one. This abandoning his family, murdering people, those she can handle. Not being racist, this is where Sabra draws the line. But then what happens next? This is... He reminds her of her place again. He puts her in her place, but before... It turns sour at the end of his speech, but I like the beginning because she says she'll never forgive him. And his immediate response to that is, uh, you will eventually, uh, maybe not even while I'm alive, but never is a long time. Yeah. And someday 
someday you will forgive me because you actually love me. And if it had stopped there, <laughs> it would have been insightful and uh, borderline wise. But then Yancey uh, takes her into the next room and uh, points out the fact that it is his name on the paper. And until it's her name on the paper, he will do as he damn well pleases with it. Yes. And the scene fades out on a shot of his scowling face, putting his wife in his place. Fuck. <laughs> Fuck, yeah. this movie is terrible. I agree with you about the, the the part that, you know, if his speech had ended before he reminds her that it's his name on the paper, it would have been a much better speech. However, like, still, how arrogant on his part to assume that just because she loves him, she's going to forgive him. Like, there are things, just because you're married and you have children and a family and all that, that doesn't mean that you are going to forgive each other for everything and anything. Yep. Like, you're allowed to have grudges or things, disagreements so big that you, like, that you can't forgive. Yeah. Um... Arrogance is the core of Yancey's character. Yeah. It, it's, it colors every action he takes and unfortunately seems to be why he's so uh, highly regarded by everyone around him because he just does whatever he wants. And that's a good thing, according to this movie. Mm -hmm. uh, then another interstitial, intertital, excuse me. Uh, which says, Yancey has been uh, stirred by wanderlust again and has abandoned his family for a second time while uh, Sabra carries on her work alone. The year is now 1929 and Osage is a proper city with paved streets and tall buildings and motor carriages. Uh, a white-haired Sabra sits in her office making plans for the 40th anniversary of the newspaper. Uh, despite Yancey being gone for decades at this point, his name is still uh, on the uh, the byline. Uh, Which was disappointing again. Yep. Uh, she keeps it on because she knows he's alive somewhere and chooses to uh, rerun the issue about uh, Native American citizenship and voting as a celebration for the 40th anniversary. Mm -hmm. uh, next scene is a luncheon in honor of Sabra becoming a member of Congress. What? <laughs> It just comes out of nowhere. She has never said anything throughout the entire movie about having any sort of political ambition or uh, desire to change anything or be in charge of anything. It's just all of a sudden she's a member of Congress. Well, the only thing was when she um, created that women's club and was teaching them about history. She, we're not really told if she teaches them or talks about politics, but we definitely know that... They're talking about American history. Yeah, just sucker punch out of nowhere. She, she's uh, high up in politics now. Mm -hmm. uh, at the lunch, Sabra introduces her family. Uh, Donna, who is married to a rich old man, because at the end of that first scene where she's being a, a shitty, awful racist, her solution is, she says at the very end, her last line is, uh, I'm going to find the richest man in town and marry him. And the richest man in town is Louis Eichner, who had the furniture, um, uh, furniture and Undertaker's store when they come and settle in town. Yeah, and he's way older than her. Oh yeah. This is one of those. Uh, She's probably in her mid twenties, and he's close to 
80 yeah. at that point. Yeah, Donna, who is married to rich old man and is waiting for him to die. Uh, her son Cimarron, uh, his, uh, this is, uh, Sabra's, how she introduces his wife, his full-blooded Indian wife, Ruby Big Elk, and their children, uh, Felice and Yancey the Second. Oh boy, the curse continues. Uh, Sabra's husband, though, is out of the city, is her excuse. Mm. Uh, then she talks a bit about how great Oklahoma is and how far they've come. All this up out of the sagebrush. Uh, and after the speech, everyone congratulates her. Oh, before the, the speech starts, this is the biggest uh, laugh I got out of the movie because people are entering into this uh, fancy dining hall where the shindig is happening. And um, we see Saul come in and there's like there's a greeter who wants to... Like, see if their name is on the list or something like that. or he... And for some reason, the greeter speaks French. He's greeting them in French. Yeah, he calls them monsieur. Monsieur, bonjour. Yep. F- French is fancy. <laughs> and uh, the school marm comes up, and there's like a, a velvet rope uh, yeah. blocking people from entering in on a little hook. And he tries to ask her who she is and if she's on the list. And I don't remember what she says. She says, I'm on the committee. I'm on the committee. And she just grabs the rope and just throws it <laughs> and walks <laughs> through it. Just gives no shit, just being an asshole. Outside on the street, uh, after the luncheon, uh, Sabra looks around at all the progress the city has made in smiles. Uh, but then there's a commotion at one of the nearby oil drills, because there's oil pumps like right down the street from mm-hmm. where they are. Uh, and a young man runs through traffic so he can get to a phone and call an ambulance. Uh, After making the call, the man explains to the gathered crowd uh, that they had been lowering a tube of nitroglycerin into the well when the oil came up early and uh, pushed the tube back out. Uh, Everyone would have been blown all to hell if an old drifter hadn't cushioned the tube against his body, uh, crushing his chest in the process. The old drifter's name, you ask? Well, some of the guys called him Old Yance. Uh, Sabra hears that, and she runs to find Yancey, uh, where he lays dying in the mud. Uh, she picks him up. He says this line that he said, uh, multiple times throughout the movie, which is his, like, consoling line to her, which is like, uh, wife and mother, a stainless woman. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and then he dies in her arms. I think he says, like, cradle me in your love or something. Yeah, I think so. Uh, puts his head down uh, on her chest and dies. Cut to a crowd cheering as a statue uh, commemorating the Oklahoma pioneers is, is unveiled. It's a statue of Yancey, the greatest racist to ever grace Oklahoma with his presence. <laughs> the end. That's right. This movie ends with the unveiling of a statue of a racist and everyone cheering. This movie is fucking wild. And not what I expected. No. Not what I expected. I didn't know anything about the movie when before we watched it. Nope. And also not what I expected while we were watching it. I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. And this is 100% the, the kind of statue that would be pulled down by protesters in modern era. Yeah. Because it's a statue of him and there's like a Native American like cowering behind him. Yes. Oh, it sucks. Oh, it sucks. I mean, did you, I don't know, did you expect anything else? (sighs) No, but it's just like, I stand in awe of just 
the level of blind ignorance and lack of self-reflection in this movie because clearly this movie believes that there's no issue with what it's doing. Or like it's blindly following the novel. It is it is presenting all these awful shitty people as uh paragons of virtue who mm-hmm. are to be admired and it's so bizarre because it feels like it's trying to show in some ways that racism against Native Americans is bad because it has these little peppered in uh, moments where, you know, Yancey talks about how they've been uh, mistreated and abused and how he's standing up for the rights in their paper and how even Sabra at the end comes around uh, and accepts that uh, a member of her family is a Native American. But it's way too little and it's way too late and there's so much other problematic stuff in this movie that the movie clearly doesn't think there's anything wrong with. Mm. So it's so bizarre that you can almost like feel it patting itself on its back for being progressive when it the opposite is true and it's this uh racist conservative misogynist shit pile of a movie <laughs> like the blindness yeah the blindness is just staggering in its uh, immensity and hypocrisy the only reason to me that could explain um, why this one best picture is, because uh, it's a movie about Manifest Destiny. Yeah, uh, this is around Great Depression times, so, well, A, they have that giant, huge crowd scene in the beginning, mm-hmm. which is pleasing to the Academy, obviously, because uh, three out of the four movies we've watched now have, have had giant crowd scenes. And also, yeah, I think since it was Great Depression times, uh, they wanted escapism into a story about uh, America being great and prosperous and everything going well. Uh, This is a new empire. A new empire. uh, Never mind the fact that it is built upon uh, millions of skeletons of dead natives. Yeah. It's a new empire. Yippee! Yeah, this was the uh, the this is the only only reason why uh, I can uh, understand that it would that it won Best Picture. It, there's nothing. There's no other redeeming qualities to me. There's no plot until yeah. There's there's no consistent plot about this. Even the Manifest Destiny uh, theme is not really explored to its fullest. Yeah. It f- I don't know how long the novel is, but it feels like it must have been a really long novel with a lot of stuff, and they just had to, uh, they tried to include all the important parts of the novel, but they had to cut them way short and not add as nearly as much details in the novel, so everything is just a very truncated, uh, bastardized version of what it should be, and... Uh, like I said, you're just expected to have enough knowledge of the novel to fill in all the blanks yourself, but we don't, so it just comes across as this, uh, I think the uh, little blurb you read in the beginning, calling it scattershot, I think that's a very good description. It, yeah, it feels like little snapshots about what life maybe uh, was uh, during uh, during those times, yeah. the land rush and all that, but it doesn't... 
I don't know, as Dude. modern audience, like I, I want more. I want a plot. I want you know, character development. I, I expect more out of a movie. Yeah, there's no driving force behind the plot. Shit just happens. And usually every situation is resolved. Like a few, every problem is resolved. Excuse me, just a few minutes after it's introduced. Mm-hmm. So what this felt like to me is it felt like we watched a bunch of episodes of an old TV show. Yes. That weren't even necessarily in order. Yeah. Because it feels, each scene feels very episodic and completely unconnected to anything that's happened before, except for all the Dixie Lee stuff. That's on the old, that's the closest thing we have to a, a continuing plot through the whole thing. But that gets, yeah. we never see her again after the courtroom. And then we have another half hour of the movie, mm-hmm. and which just jumps forward in time super rapidly and swerving all over the road and just it's just random unconnected it's just like what what is what is this movie bizarre i don't know what we're supposed to learn from it what were if there's any lesson we're supposed to take away well are you talking about what um the creator what lesson they would intend us to learn or what we can actually take from it in like viewing this in modern era both honestly i'm confused about really about both i think what they intended us to get out of it was uh we were supposed to adopt the attitude that everyone else around yancey had and worship him as a hero because he's a very assertive strong man and that's the only qualities you need to be a good person i guess is to be assertive and not listen to anyone and (laughs) be able to quote scripture they all it's like in real life how uh, assholes get most of the attention and succeed most of the time right because they're assholes and uh people mistake those really toxic qualities for uh, good and strong qualities when actually they're uh, they're awful, shitty, broken people yeah. who don't care about anyone else, which is what Yancey is. What we can take from it in modern times, I mean, uh, it lets you just reflect on uh, the progress we have made in our uh, attitudes. Not that uh, certainly not that we're perfect by any stretch in, in modern times, but at least we've made progress. I think it's important to engage with stuff like this and I can totally see a mindset of, of someone saying, oh, this stuff is awful and just destroy it and don't ever, and you know, you should never engage with anything like this at all. But I think it's important to go back and see the, the gross, terrible attitudes that were held in yesteryear, uh, lest we fall back into them. Yeah, I can see that. I just, I don't know that even... Uh... I don't know that there's a, a true like message to this uh, to this movie. I don't know that there's a yeah, there's nothing satisfying to me that the the movie would be really telling us, telling the audience. Yeah. Another thing we talked about uh off mic was uh the point the movie goes off the rails, which is the the halfway point because up until that point I was waiting for the plot to begin, yes. but then once we pass that point, you realize you're you're past uh, the time when any plot could rightfully start and then conclude. So mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I guess this whole movie is just this random stuff. 
Yeah, I really, like I said earlier, I really thought after the, uh, you know, shooting sequence and all that with a kid that the rest of the movie was going to be just Yancey gaining even more and more power and eventually ending up, you know, sheriff, mayor, we see him, you know, uh, going for a governor. I really thought that this was going to be an entire movie to the glory of Yancey. His uninterrupted rise to power as everyone scrambles uh, to throw themselves under his feet. But then it, yeah, it turns around for no reason. Uh, at that point, I guess we're supposed to take Sabra as the the protagonist and go along with her. But then I, even that has no point to me. We're we're getting we're again getting snapshots of her life, and we don't really see what she's accomplished or why or how. And we're just supposed to go along with the story uh, of her being uh, still working uh, at the newspaper and making it work and having some sort of higher um, status in her society, but... Yeah, there is no character in this film that is fleshed out even close enough for you to be able to have any sort of feelings of empathy or... uh, Or even just interest. Yeah, interest. That's a better way of describing it. Yeah, you're not given enough from anyone to have any interest at all. They're all very ephemeral and unexplored characters. Mm -hmm. Even Yancey himself, he has this whole backstory that is never gone into, except in the the lightest snippets of like, oh, he had an outlaw past, but that's never fleshed out. And like... Dixie Lee is never fleshed out as to why everyone hates her, and Sabra is never fleshed out into any having any sort of political ambition or why she stays with Yancey or why she keeps working on the paper. And You know, one of the only characters that I was sort of rooting for throughout the movie, is, he doesn't get much screen time or anything, but I was... Um, Happy any time we had some time jumps, and you could see the evolution of the time uh, of the of the town, yeah, and see uh, that uh, Saul was expanding his business. Saul might be the only, well, aside from the little kids, yeah. he might be the only good person in this movie. <laughs> he's yeah, you can be sympathetic towards him because he's been picked on at the beginning and he's just he's a a nice character he's consistent he seems to be very like loyal and yep he's always very quiet and unassuming and he has a a great scene with the school marm at the very end of the luncheon where she walks Mm -hmm. up to him and she tries to pull the the same uh oh i'm uh, my ancestors were one of the signers of the declaration of independence and uh, his response is, uh, well, one of my uh, ancestors was Moses, the, the creator of the Ten Commandments, and drops his mic and walks away. Yep, that was great. Yep. That was great. Yeah, fuck you, school marm. Don't give a shit. Needless to say, <sighs> yeah. this is not going to be one of our favorites. So, what'd you, what, what'd you think of Cimarron? <laughs> it's currently at the bottom of my list. Yeah. 
I my current ranking of the stars is uh, Wings, All Quiet on the Western Front, Broadway Melody, and then Cimarron. Yeah, Wings and All Quiet on the Western Front are number one and two for me, respectively. Uh, war movies still holding it down on top. Mm-hmm. Of course, they've uh, captured the the top of the hill. They have all the guns. Uh, Broadway Melody is ninety, and I'm not gonna put Simron ab- above anything else. So it goes below ninety at, at ninety one now. And this has actually created a very interesting situation because uh, before watching this, I thought I knew for sure what uh, the very bottom movie was going to be for me mm-hmm. out of all the movies we watched because there is a movie far in the future that uh, I absolutely despise and think is philosophically gross. And I thought for sure it was going to be the worst movie on this list, but the real fight might not happen at the top of this list. The the real fight (laughs) might might happen at the bottom. bottom. (laughs) (laughs) And audience, just to be clear, I still don't know what that movie is for my husband. When that day comes, it's it's a fairly modern movie. When that day comes, yeah, it's... It's gonna be a hard decision. Wh- for where to place which, it on the list. For which ones worse? They're they're both gross, but in different ways. Okay. On, well, on, we'll, we'll make it there one day. Yeah. On that day, I will have to uh, search my soul and determine which flavor of grossness uh, grosses me out more. And on that day, on that movie, I will probably have to be writing the synopsis because. I, w- I wouldn't want to do that to you. Mm. <laughs> I would never pass a, uh, up an opportunity to uh, spit hot fire at this movie the way All it deserves. Right. Uh, what's our next one? The Grand oh. Hotel, right? The Grand Hotel, yes. Please. Please, God. <laughs> <laughs> please be better. Please be an actual good movie. Yes. Hopefully. We'll cross our fingers. As always, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Okay, that's it, that's it, that's it.